and welcome to Romaniacs, the podcast that knows more about US-UK trade than Donald Trump does. <laughs> I'm Ros Taylor and with me in the studio are regulars Ian Dunt, the editor of politics.co.uk and Nina Schick, expert and commentator on politics and disinformation. Hello. Now, a listener requested after last week's show that I read the entire withdrawal agreement while Ian provides a sweary, runny commentary. <laughs> <laughs> so, we aim to please. It's a big job, but someone's got to do it. Here goes. Right. Are you, are you ready to... Yeah, yeah sure. I'll, I'll just say sort of what comes every so often. Yes, yeah, so, <laughs> perhaps not that word. Okay, the, I'll, I'll say fuck. Yeah. yeah. The European Union and the European Atomic Energy Community and the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern <laughs> Ireland, considering that on 29th of March 2017, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, United Kingdom, following the outcome of a referendum... Uh, fuck. ...held in the United <laughs> Kingdom and its sovereign decision to leave the European Union... <laughs> notified its intention to withdraw from the European Union Union, and the European Atomic Energy Community, Euratom, in accordance with Article 50 of the Treaty on European Union, TEU. Have you had enough yet? I have, I do, yeah. Right, I could do this all day. I, I think we should make this a special podcast for Patreon, for Patreon backers only. Okay. The thing is, we want Patreon backers, don't we? We're discouraging them. No, this is a sleep cut. I, I have, actually have a sleep app that um, one of the, because um, uh, I have terrible insomnia, and one of the things is the European GDPR regulation, and they read it to you. Oh, and it wow. always oh. sends me to sleep. It's brilliant. Oh. Anyway, Ian, how are you? Are you excited we finally have a date for the vote? Uh, I'm not sure if excited is exactly the right word, but yeah, but it does. It, to, to be fair, it it is more. It's it's actually a bit more doable this period, isn't it, than when we were just caught in that sort of groundhog day of nonsense news about nothing going round and around and around. At least now there is a structure in place and there is some kind of timetable, and I think probably that does make it a little bit less traumatic. Mm, possibly, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, Nina, The Guardian reported last week that 60% of Britons believe in conspiracy theories. Um, Leavers are more likely to believe in them than Remainers. Did that surprise you? Uh, no, <laughs> absolutely not. I mean, uh, you do when you look at, you know, voters who voted to leave, you do see a high correlation in kind of alarming statistics between leave voters and support for the death penalty. Um, also, you know, things like believing evidently that 70, being convinced by an argument like 76 million Turks, you know, would flood uh, Britain after if, if the UK were to remain in the EU. So it's not surprise, surprising. It's not a facts based debate. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> But I talked to a, to a US academic earlier this year and he spent his whole time studying conspiracy theories and he said Democrats were just as likely to believe in them as Republicans. And that took me aback a little bit because I was, you know, biased. Um, is, is it a kind of paranoia? Is it something we've imported from the US, do you think? I think it's broadly indicative of a larger trend in society where kind of citizens feel like politicians and the system isn't working for them anymore. So any kind of conspiracy theories, whether you believe that, you know, Hillary Clinton has um, uh, a pedophile ring in the basement of a pizza parlor or, you know, that (laughs) the ridiculousness of these conspiracy theories is spun to support people's own cognitive biases. And it's true that we see that on both sides of the debate, true in the US as well as here, to be honest with you. Our guest today is the comedian and actor Marcus Brigstock. He's a regular on Have I Got News For You and Radio 4's Now Show. He's well known as the station's nice but dim posh chap investigative (laughs) reporter, Giles Wembley Hogg. (laughs) And his Brexit material famously had angry leavers walking out of his shows in early 2017. Congratulations, Marcus. Thank you, yeah. Good job. (laughs) 
And his Radio 4 series, The Briggs Society, in which he investigated and worked out how to fix various institutions from the HS to the railways, was described by The Telegraph's Dominic Cavendish as a textbook example of the BBC's noxious lefty bias and a (laughs) licence fee-funded attack on coalition policy. Yes. I I think that's correct. I'd like to thank Dominic Cavendish for listening as carefully as he did. Yeah. I mean... You know, I don't, I'm not sure what he expected fully. I think, I think what he'd like is for more satire just to come out and go. Well, I think they all did a super job this week, don't you? <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Next week, Miles Jupp says, "Yay!" It's so mad, isn't it? I did in the Briggs Society. Um, I put myself in charge of the European Union uh, one week. It's quite complicated. Yeah, mm. I get that mm. impression. That, you know, sometimes I feel it's a bit. Then I think. Whatever, you know, Council Council of Europe, European Council, what's the difference? Oh, oh, there is a difference. (laughs) Turns out there is a difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, bizarrely, that thing about people leaving my shows, I was at a a comedy um, uh, conference called The Craft of Comedy, and I mentioned that I think a comedian's job at a show is to make material that's possible for people to find funny, even if they disagree with you. And I felt that people having not been able to find what I wrote funny was my failing not theirs and I have a responsibility to get to try to get that right but talked about how Brexit had been so unbelievably divisive that it had that task had been more than I could manage and you know a few people had walked out of my show some had left at half time or not come back or whatever Uh, this was reported on Radio 4 and then the Telegraph said, basically, outside the M25, comedians like Marcus Brigstock, including, and added a list of arbitrary uh, names they thought might be similar, uh, none of us could play at all, and effectively that tours were being cancelled, which the Mail and Express and others took as the baseline for their story and grew it out even more. Hmm. And I literally had people ringing me going, I'm so sorry, your career's over. <laughs> like... Well, it, it's so bonkers, isn't it? Well, it's bonkers. no wonder. It's no wonder you're a Remainer because you're you're a Francophile. You're a big Francophile. Big Francophile. You? Wikipedia says, which I know was in your notes. <laughs> Wikipedia says I'm a French citizen, and I think this is purely because I learned French on the telly for a TV show, and <laughs> that's sort of enough for some. Well, he's probably French, isn't he? And they've heard me saying that I'm pro pro Europe, not just anti leaving, but pro Europe and a Francophile. They're like. Yeah, yeah, that'll do. Yeah. He's a beret-wearing coward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically, you've come to the right place. So, uh, bienvenue. Do you, did, oh, you, did you think, if I'm annoying the Telegraph, I must be doing, you know, I must be doing something yeah. right? Yeah. I did. I did. But then at the same time, you know, I would like... I always used to say about the Telegraph that you could read it and disagree and still learn something. And I think that stopped being true, I think I really noticed it about five years ago. I, don't, I can't remember when the Barclay Brothers sort of did their thing. But I always used to say to people, no, 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 read The Telegraph. It'll do you good. Mm-hmm. And now I, I worry when I see people reading it because it's it's crap. Yeah. You know, it's, it's mostly a- crap. And there yeah. are still some good journalists there. But sort of overall, it's become crap, which is, which is a shame. Uh, and I, don't, I certainly don't mind irritating them. But you'd like to think that people could be reasonable. <laughs> but then we wouldn't have this podcast, would we? <laughs> are we? Are we right in saying that Giles Wembley-Hogg is coming back and he's doing Brexit? Yes. I was, I was de- I'm delighted that, that you know already. Yes, it's <laughs> happening. They're letting me do Giles Wembley-Hogg does Brexit. I, I absolutely cannot believe it. Um, and as it stands, if we leave, we're not going to leave. 
Um, if we leave on the 29th, I think the program's going out that day. So the weight of responsibility oh, is on my shoulders. Well, actually, the plot as it stands, without too many spoilers, is due to some mool being kept in lorries um, that Giles is providing for a big conference just before the final signing of the document on the 29th. Everybody bar him gets very badly poisoned uh, and he has to, he's the one who has to sign the final document saying we're out. Um, that's where it's at at the moment. But to be honest, anything I've written, I've had to change a day later, so I'm just going to wait. We'll, we'll write it that week, I think. We'll see. And, you know, for those of you who don't speak French, more muscle. Oh, yes. Marcus, <laughs> Marcus will be with us throughout the show and we'll be asking him what he thinks of the following stories and also what Giles Mobley Hogg would make of them. So <laughs> The <there's>... same. <laughs> <laughs> New talk of Norway plus if Theresa May can't get her deal through the Commons. A possible TV debate between May and Corbyn and new wonkery on the economic kit will take from leaving. All this after reminders from Nina. In my home country of Germany, we get ready for Christmas with Glühwein in Lebkuchen in the Christmas markets. And now you can have the same magical experience without the wine, cakes or snow at the Romaniacs online Christmas market. So really not the same experience at all. We've got special Christmas merchandise to fill your friends and relatives stockings, including brand new mugs and T-shirts with the slogans, all I want for Christmas is EU. And I heart Brussels sprouts. They're perfect. <laughs> They're, yeah, nice. They're perfect gifts for fellow Romaniacs. Great passive-aggressive gifts for those Brexity loved ones. And delivery is guaranteed before Christmas. Just go to our Facebook, Twitter, or Patreon pages for more. The direct address is rmnc merch m e r c h that is dot myshopify dot com. And don't forget the final Romaniacs live of 2018 at the Leicester Square Theatre in London on Monday, 10th of December. The last few tickets are still available at leicestersquaretheatre.com. You can see Roz, Ian, Dorian Linsky and Ingrid Oliver explain what happened this year and what will definitely happen next year. And there'll be merchandise from our Christmas market too. So that's the Romaniacs Christmas market for all your festive needs. And LeicesterSquareTheatre.com for Romaniacs Live on Monday the 10th of December. Thanks, Nina. Now, take off your clothes and put on your Nordic helmet for this week's <laughs> Brexit news. It turns out a group of Tory MPs, people like Amber Rudd, David Lidington and that shameless Remainer... Philip Hammond, have been meeting every week to discuss the Brexit hellstorm and they have a plan for what to do if May can't get a deal through the Commons. Instead of crashing out with no deal, we'd ask the EU for a Norway plus deal. Ian, this is all to do with EFTA, isn't it? And you know all about EFTA. Well, what does Norway? What does Norway Plus actually mean? How is it more plus than Norway? I think they probably want to attach a customs union onto it, which would be quite difficult. Of course, the main problem that we know with Norway is you have to accept freedom of movement because you're part of the single market. Um, the people that sort of support it tend to point to, there's a couple of articles, Article 112 and Article 113, which allow you to have some kind of wriggle room on that. That's never really been tested. And I don't think there's a very compelling case for the fact that it's a firm, definite power that you could use. You can do it, but if you do it, the EU gets to, or the other EEA member states get to take action against you. And the actions they take against you would affect all the other EFTA members. So that's Norway, Liechtenstein, Iceland, not Switzerland, because they're in, they have their own funny little arrangement. So it's a bit more complicated than they make out. There is another power that they like to talk about, which is 102, which is the right of, of reservation. And that basically means you can veto an EU law when it comes down. But again, 
no one ever fucking does this. Like Norway, did, when they were talking about privatising postal services, Norwegians hated the look of that. And they came close to pressing the button, but they never pressed it. Because if you press it, that means you're cut out of that part of the agreement. And no one really knows what we mean when we say part of the agreement, because no one ever pressed the button. So it's not so much a veto as an ejector seat. Well, I mean, seriously, because like, after that point, then you're out of that thing. It's so like it's not really a veto. Because it's only because you're not. It's not like the whole of the agreement falls down. It's yeah. Just, if it was on financial services, maybe it's three or four little financial policies, or yeah, maybe yeah. it's all of like Mifid two or whatever. We just okay. don't know because no one ever does it. Thing is, part of the reason they don't do it is because there's this sort of collegiate culture in EFTA and the EA, which is about oh let's work together, let's make it all you know work along. That is not how I think how it would go if Britain was in it, where we're going to be like, we're going to kick the shit out of your little arrangement over here and take what we can. So it's, it's, it's sort of like, you know, apples for oranges, really. It's quite hard to see how we would work in it. Nevertheless, it's good that they're talking about this, because I think if we fail, this deal does go through in the end. That is where the battle will take place on the other side of let's limit the damage. And the more Tories are talking about stuff like Norway, I think the better our damage limitation strategy will be if we fail to stop the deal going through at all. And the people who are pushing it say that in any case, even with the freedom of movement, we could deploy the emergency break, which was something that David Cameron was um, talking about when he was negotiating with Brussels. But that basically means, doesn't it, that you, uh, well, you pull an emergency break and you say, there's too many migrants, we can't take any more, and that's it. That's how it works, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's your 112, 113 thing. That's your one right. It it doesn't really... It is unclear how effective that would be, or even on what basis we would make the argument. Because the thing is, there aren't too many immigrants in this country, and economically we've benefited from them. So on what basis would they be able to say that you need an emergency break in the first place? Yeah, and I think what strikes me is that, you know, this conversation in the UK just seems to be happening within the UK, literally within (laughs) the UK. At no point do people consider, you know, what the other 27 countries of the EU are willing to accept or what's permissible to them. So they've been quite clear. If you want a straight down the line Norway deal, that's an option. That means, however, you lose all the voting rights and you all the kind of um, benefits of EU membership or special carve-outs that the UK has now whilst accepting free movement. And when it comes to free movement, why on earth would the EU27? Like, let's just be super simple. Why would they agree to an emergency break for the UK while there is no emergency? How do you quantify that? And meanwhile, agree that all UK citizens can live, work, travel freely in the EU 2027. It doesn't work like that. It's based on the principle of reciprocity. And May would have to go, wouldn't she? Because she couldn't hang on if this if she lost her deal. It would have to be someone else in charge, wouldn't it? Do you think? Oh, I don't know, man. I, I feel like they will fight. Um, <laughs> it pains me to say this, but those within the Conservative Party that we can see and not see will fight tooth and claw to keep Theresa May where she is and under the current circumstances and this is the bit that makes me want to peel my skin off I'm very (laughs) glad they're doing that Um, any scenario in which Theresa May leaves opens the door for all levels of crazy and I you know I look at it now and my bizarrely I find myself wishing that what had happened was that they'd only put the staunchest levers in charge of absolutely everything immediately after the vote and just gone, there you go. Jacob Rees-Mogg is Prime Minister. Nigel Farage should have been brought into government and negotiated for it, for it because by this stage right now, the whole lot of them would be hiding in their houses to prevent their heads being put on spikes because it would all be their fault. And at this stage, like a last-minute replacement for Theresa May... 
they will be able to do what they're doing and they'd be able to amplify it, which is say, well, of course, you know, had I been able to deliver the unicorn, uh, we'd all have it by now. So I, I don't think May goes anywhere because I think they've, well, I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of people fighting to keep her where she is. Our problem with her is, is the annoying thing is she keeps the stuff she says about a second referendum. She is now, even by her standards, where of course we all know she spent a year saying there'd be no general election and then there was mm. one. So, of course, it's not like she just says something and it's the case. But she has now really, on that point, properly boxed herself in. Like, I mean, she said, it can't be, if that was ever to happen, it won't be me. You know, I, this will never happen. And you just think it's pretty impossible, assuming she's going to lose that first vote, which she almost yeah. certainly will, it's pretty impossible for her to do it. And so, even though. Everything else is sort of aligning towards it in terms of the, the incentives for each individual. Mm. Say for, if you're a Tory MP, you don't have to risk your seat. There's another way through this. Mm. Even if you're on the hard Brexit wing, lots of those guys are starting to talk about, you know, actually, maybe a referendum is the only way that we can actually start getting out from this straitjacket. Lots of the structures are aligning. But the problem is she has basically spoken herself into being unable to ever do it. Mm. And Labour are not ever going to take the lead on it. I think they will they will be quite happy if the Tories say it, but they won't take the lead. And that presents a real problem. You're making them sound cowardly. (laughs) (laughs) The way you said that made me think rank cowards who are willing just to like stand by and watch people get really badly hurt, like particularly very, very poor people. And and then step in at that point. Oh, that's a that's a mean shade to paint them in, isn't it? <laughs> it's the cynicism it's got to me. Yeah. Nina, would you would you be happy to settle for Norway Plus? So first of all, Norway Plus, I don't think exists because I think the level of bespoke relationship is very much tied into what is within the realm of possibility. So Norway definitely exists. Is that a less economically damaging model? Absolutely. Is it worse than what the UK has now? Yes. But is it in a scale of options that are available, given that this, I think, is now becoming clear what it always has been? This is a damage control exercise. There was no model ever that was going to be this great economic liberation and exercise and, you know, um, unparalleled sovereignty. So if you just look at it, in terms of economic consequences, if we have to leave, Norway is probably one of the least harmful places where, where the UK could end up. What a dismal conversation. <laughs> I mean, no offence, yeah. guys. Well, but isn't it? But isn't yeah. it? Like, like every day that this is how this looks. Yeah. And including the thing that I would like most of all, which is just make it stop. That the consequences of that for people who I am variously sympathetic towards or angry about um, the consequences for them in terms of how they feel about democracy. It does matter. It's really, really important. I don't buy the whole Nigel Farage, they'll take up arms thing. I believe people could be encouraged to, certainly. But but it's just so terribly, terribly bleak. Time travel is literally the only option. No, I agree with you. And I think that, you know, because everybody is going to be unhappy about where we end up because this is essentially a damage control exercise. Mm. Who in the end loses the most is democracy itself because with every single day, everybody on whatever part of the spectrum you're on has less and less faith in politics or the system to deliver. Mm -hmm. So that is one of the consequences of Brexit, which Mm. is actually entirely foreseeable in 2016. And that's indeed why we were warning against taking a referendum like this. Well, now I'm going to cheer you all up with the prospect. (laughs) The prospect of... An exciting debate. 
Um, we, we, not, we not only know when the Commons vote is going to be, that's going to be December the 11th, just a day after our next Romaniacs live show. So the audience is going to be on tenterhooks. Oh, what fun. <laughs> I know. And the day it's the day before that is slated for a TV debate between Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn. And apparently uh, Corbyn's office wants to schedule it uh, just before Strictly Come Dancing, because obviously, you know, quick step, backstop, you're tuning in. <laughs> you're just going to turn it on now earlier because you want to hear all about. Yeah. OK, um, Nina, May ref- she refused to do any general election debates famously, and she sent Amber Rudd, in, uh, Rudd instead. Um, why is she so suddenly keen on the idea of a debate, do you think? It's surprising. I mean, given that, you know, her prospects for the general election pretty much sunk when she started coming and doing her Maybot experiences. So I think it's Mm. safe to say that her delivery isn't particularly, uh, you know, inspiring. But maybe, you know, she feels that she has to do this. She has a sense of public duty. And given, you know, that everybody else in her party or it seems like a lot of the people taking up airtime are just talking about whether or not they've delivered a letter. Uh, she feels that against that backdrop, she can connect more with the public. I mean, you see her doing her kind of selling Brexit thing day in and day out, and she just sticks to script. You know, the Maybot is definitely doing what she thinks is necessary for the country. I think it's working. I agree, yeah. I think there has been more public sympathy towards her, especially against the backdrop of these hardcore Brexiteers who are like talking about sinking the government and then not doing anything about it. So it almost seems like public opinion has swung a little bit behind her because they feel sorry for her because it seems like she's doing the best she can, you know, give her a break. Mm. I don't know if the public sees through Jeremy Corbyn's absolute inconsistencies on Brexit, though. Well, I don't think that they really remember he exists until there's another campaign, because that's the only time that he seems to remember that he has a job. So he goes completely quiet. He goes on to sort of coma status. And then there's a campaign, either an internal Labour one or there's a general election. And the guy comes alive and he looks like he he cares. And then they remember that he exists. And then he starts doing better, which is why I'm quite critical when you see poll after poll showing Labour just below the Tories. I don't think that would remain in, in a general election campaign between May and Jeremy Corbyn, because she's terrible in campaigns and he's actually much better than yeah. he is normally is he though because he's he's not good at debates he's good at rallies isn't he i mean he's right. able to yeah. and he gets also yeah. he gets a bit tetchy when challenged and that's he, always a really bad look you know, he was he was all right with paxman if you remember at the last general election where he mm. he didn't get rattled and he was a bit more relaxed paxman would sort of it was a terrible series he was like you want to you know shoot the queen don't you and, and so it's it's quite easy for jeremy corbett to just be like well it's not in the manifesto so you know, <laughs> not, not right now yeah, yeah. and actually he came across kind of reasonably and, and quite well it was wasn't like those ones, for instance, the John, it's mostly Channel 4 News he gets most cross with. If you look at the John Snow one, Labour Party conference, where there's just, he's being presented with evidence of anti-Semitism. He's being presented with the fact that one of his MPs has to have a police around her at his own conference. And he shows no compassion, like no empathy at all mm-hmm. for, for how that goes. So he, he does have those two variances, but I think usually he keeps control on the disgruntled, angry uncle at the dinner table <laughs> during an election campaign, at least. But this is a this is so weird. It's weird to call it a debate for one thing, yeah. because you know fundamentally they don't disagree about much of what is happening right now. I think the discussion that Corbyn would like to have is a post-election. He wants he wants a, a, an electoral debate, a general election debate to set out the case for his post-Brexit Britain. And Theresa May is tied to whatever the consequences of this appalling deal will be and sort of making the best of that. It doesn't feel to me like there's a debate to be had. 
I mean, w- weirdly, uh, Boris Johnson is saying that it will be a completely meaningless debate because there aren't any levers uh, on on the stand. And I feel <laughs> it's a meaningless debate because there aren't any remainers on the stand. Yeah. Well, uh, I was, was going to say that it's, you know, so, it, it's, it's 50, I think it's 50% of Britons now want to stay in the EU. That's that's according to the latest Best for Britain poll. There's a mm. shout out to Naomi there. But um, given that, I mean, 56% and there's no remain representative. This is a debate between two hard Brexiteers, basically. And as you say, it's not really a debate, is it? Yeah, and, and that problem, I think, of... of identification of, of the labelling, you know, because they're not seen as hard Brexiteers or Brexiteers at all by certainly those in, in positions of power, but probably most of the people who voted to leave, they go, no, 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 no. These people say at every opportunity that they're Remainers. We know deep down they're Remainers. We know that Theresa May has secretly done this on purpose and not given us our unicorn and secretly Jeremy Corbyn, because it suited the Conservatives to sort of feed into this narrative, secretly he'll keep us in somehow. Um, so the labelling is, is, a, is a mess because nobody... Nobody dares say. It's going to be agony to watch, isn't it? It would be dreadful. I do actually think that Boris Johnson is right that there should be a Tory Brexiter who rejects the deal as part of any debate like that. And I think that there needs to be a completely unashamed Remainer there as well. There needs to be people who are representing those reasons. Because otherwise it's it's just so odd. And I think broadcasters should be careful about having it, especially since Theresa May wouldn't do the debate with Corbyn when it was pertinent, Mm. i.e. during a general election campaign. For her to do it now when it is not pertinent seems like it's something the broadcasters shouldn't allow themselves to be sucked into that. And if they do, they should do it on their own terms, which is more complicated than just a head-to-head between two non-existent positions. But if they want, in the debate, if they want someone who's a real hardcore lever and a Remainer, they could solve that problem easily just by booking Boris Johnson, couldn't they? Just the one person. I mean, that does it, doesn't it? He could he could decide just beside the, before the debate which one he, which way he was going to go, and he could surprise Absolutely. us all. Well, someone on, who yeah. made it clear for years and years and years mm-hmm. that he liked the sport of lying about the EU for money, but that remaining was obviously the right thing to do, and he's also really good at pretending that leaving's a good idea. It's perfect. In fact, why have May and Corbyn? Why not just have Boris Johnson argue with the back of his own horrid head? <laughs> Saves money. <laughs> but seriously, seriously, if we if we were going to have a remainder on there, who should it be? I would go Caroline Lucas. Yeah. Right. I right. would. I can't, I can't see who who has been a bit, who's been more consistent. So, I mean, there's lots of people, obviously, that I really like. There's lots of Labour MPs who have done a really good job of making the case, standing up for it. You could say someone like Ken Clark or something, I think it's been incredibly consistent. But most of those guys have either gone for at some point soft Brexit or they've said, look, I accept it, we have to do it, we just need to minimise damage, like Ken Clark is doing now with the deal. And I think it's quite hard to put them in that position. Caroline Lucas, not because she's some sort of saintly figure, but because of her own sort of political incentives, of course, it's, it, that's there. It's not complicated for her. She's not in some northern Labour seat where actually it's a much more... She's in Brighton, where the, you know, the views are very clear of what she needs to do. She can make that case, I think, with a degree of consistency and sort of purity to it. She's also it been an about. MEP for yeah. 12 yes. yeah, years, yeah. has she not, I, I think, and and is able to talk with great clarity about the shortcomings of the European Union and what's wrong, what would need to change hmm. um, in, over the longer term um, should we find a way to, to remain. She'd be a great choice other than 
The Green Party, in and of itself, regrettably, is enough for a majority of people to go, <laughs> not you, weirdo. Mm. I like my stuff. Thank you very much. No, I don't want to be a vegan. Uh, no, I don't want to not have my big telly. No, I don't want my car taken away, even though none of those things are in the Green Party manifesto or anything. But it's enough. It's The name is enough. And, it, and mm. regrettably, it, it always has been. But I think as a person, particularly with her long period of being uh, an MEP and her her smart criticisms of the EU I think she'd be a perfect fit I can't believe I can't believe that you're not even considering Vids Cable I mean <laughs> well, to be honest yes. my bigger problem with that is, is is that free movement moment that he had where just like, if you remember like the no, end of I, I was joking yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, but Lib Dems take us up on this all the time so I'm, I'm constantly told like you guys never talk about the Lib Dems enough you don't credit Vids Cable enough and I sort of think well I'm not he, he he wobbled and he hasn't been that impressive since the wobble, mm. really. So he, he makes it difficult to substantiate his position. Well, they've got a twofold problem, the Lib Dems, that I see anyway. So on the one hand, anyone who was attached to the coalition is tainted and needs to go. But the other problem they have is that no one knows any of their people. So they need new mm. people and recognisable faces at the same time. Um, a bunch of celebs to join, I think, you know. I mean, Gina Miller was talked about, wasn't she, as, as joining, and she made it very clear. No, thanks. Mm. I like a small boat, but not that small. <laughs> uh, but it's a damn shame. I mean, I, this is what I hear all the time. I hear amongst people that I hang out with, the people going, what I really, really want is someone who has centre-left politics, understands the value of the city bringing money in as uncomfortable as that may be, but wants to remain clearly and is not afraid of progressive values. And the Lib Dems must just daily be going, hey! <laughs> and it's just still not them, is it? Yeah, and let's face it, it's a great uh, route to a job at Facebook, you know. Um, <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> on to some wonkery. Um, the UK in a changing Europe think tank has wargamed some leaves scenarios. It doesn't look good. And let's not ask whether anyone's listening to Project Fear anyway, because our rival pro- uh, podcasts do that all the time. Let's dig deep into the warnings. They say that with May's deal, GDP could fall by between 1.9% and 5.5%, and under no deal, that falls to up to 8.7%. But the hit would be more immediate because of course, there'd be no transition period. And the government's own forecasts, which came out today, show a similar downturn, although they didn't actually model May's deal, but the Chequers one, which is outdated, but never mind. And they also modelled Norway, Canada and no deal. And in that worst case scenario, GDP will be 10.7% lower in 15 years time. Ian, what does it mean when GDP falls? Because it can seem to be a quite an abstract thing. There's an anecdote one of the authors of this report, um, Anand Manon, tells, and he was at an, at an event in the north, and he issued all these warnings before the referendum. And someone in the audience shouted, that's your GDP, not ours. Mm-hmm. Who's, who's going to feel the pain? Uh, the poorer people. Um, so it depends on... Let's say there's two kinds, right? So number one would be sort of no deal or Canada, where you're instantly going to get barriers, tariffs, regulatory barriers on goods. And those goods are primarily agricultural or they're industrial goods. So the kind of people that work on those are the kind of people who would typically have lower income salaries. They'd probably be upper working class. And below. Um, then there's the bigger question of if you start freezing out things like services, you financial services will get less money. They'll pay less money to the Treasury and less money will then be there for public services. And the question is, who suffers then? And the obvious answer is, again, people use public services who are more reliant on welfare, just poorer people. Now, 
there are there are some ways around that. You know, when, when the original decisions were made on austerity, you don't have to do all of it by cutting services. You can also tax people more. But there is a limit to how much you can tax people, especially when, for instance, if you have a financial services company that needs to set up uh, a new branch in Europe in order to sort of, and as soon as it does that, in order to sort of keep on setting things in Europe, it's going to have to put up with European regulation rules on capitalization, which means it's going to have to put more money there. And after a while, it won't be immediate, not like with goods where the barriers go straight up. But after 10 years, after 20 years, they will start asking questions like, well, if we've got to keep up these two things, why don't we just move everything over to the place where we keep on having to abide by the regulation? And that's when you get the bleeding out of services, just like you do on regulations on goods. And say, if you're a car manufacturer, where are you going to be lobbying people for new driverless cars? Of course, it makes more sense to be doing it in Brussels than it did when you were back in London, being able to say to the minister, this is what we want you to go be to, to be pushing for. So that kind of drift away, if you combine it with then ratcheting up taxation, means you're also in trouble. So whichever way you cut it, when you do these things, it is always the poor who lose. And the authors also point out that the divorce bill is pretty small beans compared to the fall in GDP under these scenarios. And so, in other words, if we fail to pay and say, oh, we're not giving them our money, we're cutting off our nose to spite our face, aren't we? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's a drop in the ocean compared to the amount of money that we're going to lose on this thing. Yeah. It's an absurdity to think that the debate is focused on that bill rather than the long-term core damage that we're doing to the economy. It's fucking Mickey Mouse bullshit. Mm. I'm, I'm not a thick man. Um, that's it. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not a thick man, and I am just, just, just by my fingernails, hanging on to the very outside of understanding what GDP really is and what a fall in GDP actually means in practical terms. I'm just right on the outside, and I think that for most people, it's almost immediately meaningless it's this you know it's mm. the bit at the end of the news where someone says footsie it's the no. bit at the end of the news where someone says currency and frankly unless you've booked a holiday and it's tomorrow all of that is it's just yeah. nothing it's like football results for me just nip, totally <laughs> nothing it means nothing and i don't know i mean they have a point when they talk about um, a project of fear if you start talking about the specifics i.e. saying right if you live there that company that big employer there needs this and if it doesn't have this that big company will go there will be no jobs and for the rest of you who don't work for that company that's the main income provider in the town or village where you live right and without that main source of income what then happens is everything turns to shit because everybody has less money and that means the small shop that's been managing because there was income for all those people and it kind of in a rather babyish way needs to be explained like that to me mm. to get it mm. and I'm in a very privileged position being a touring comedian I think we all are in that we go to towns I am definitely and proudly part of the metropolitan liberal elite but I spend my time going to towns and I spend my day there walking around and perhaps arrogantly and perhaps this is an awful patronising thing to say but I look at a lot of the places I play and I think if you lived here what would be your best chance what would be the what would be all right for you? The best thing you could hope for. And it would be getting the job at the big local employer. And they do tend to be the big local employers. We're not seeing, you know, small bespoke craft industries or whatever they may be manufacturing things on a small scale in these towns because there isn't the marketplace for them unless they manage to send them to London. And so I think 
I think just from my own experience, it's really hard to get a handle on numbers like that, other than that they're scary. There was a report, wasn't there, that we'll lose a hundred billion a year or something that came out this week or something. I'm like, <laughs> I had to Google how many zeros there are on a billion and then add a couple more. Yeah. And it's totally meaningless. It's yeah. all meaningless. Um, and I don't, I don't know. As you know, as my job is to be a communicator, as you can hear from this ten-minute ramble. Um, but my job is to communicate things and to try and make sense of things. And I'm way off on stuff like that. Have you been up to um, Sunderland? I was thinking of Sunderland yes. because of Nissan, and you know that's yeah. the obvious example of a big, big, big local employer. Yeah. And you've and uh, did you you know did you talk about Brexit with the audience? Yes, I'm, I've, and I've talked about it in lots of those sorts of uh, places. Not so much where there's one massive employer like Sunderland. I haven't been Sunderland on this leg of the tour, but I've played there many times before. And yeah, you know, I mean, the places I go that are the poorest are the places that voted in the highest numbers for um, Brexit, and they struggle with it. And I've tried to talk a little bit about this kind of stuff in those places and uh, weirdly it doesn't fly mm. because yeah. it's very bad news and it's not anybody's fault if well it's somebody's fault but it isn't their fault that the backdrop for a binary referendum on the most complicated question that's been asked in my lifetime was set it was set 20 years before it was already ruined long before Farage um, Farage was told he couldn't smoke in the pub and that galvanised his politics because he's just a selfish little baby. Um, you know, long, long, long before that, the backdrop of the story of the boogeyman was set in all of these towns and communities and London too. Um, and that's what ruined it. And talking people out of not just the, the stuff since the referendum or in the build-up to it, but 20, 30, 40 years worth of, well, the boogeyman is over there, the boogeyman's under your bed, the, the something, the other are coming for your stuff. You're being governed from without. And um, that takes a very long time to, to talk people out of that. And it's embarrassing too, right? Mm. It's embarrassing to say, oh, we fell for something. Uh, that's the thing. It's it's you know super emotional, and it is not one based on fact. And what the Leave campaign was able to do very successfully was, of course, paint this as a campaign, as all populists do, whether on the left or the right, of the people versus the elite, quote unquote. And so the feeling is that that's your GDP, you know, City of London, or that's your money, bankers, fat cats, whoever, Eurocrats on the gravy train. It's too abstract, but. If you actually start thinking about, you know, the consequences materially of what this actually means for people, this is a nice anecdote I heard the other day. And it's a major supermarket chain here in the UK that gets every single day 127 lorries stuffed full of broccoli just for this one chain every single day from Spain through Dover. So when you start thinking that, you know, if they had to f go through some, ex you know, longer customs checks that half of those lorries might not get through. And that's just for broccoli. You start seeing that, you know, uh, having kind of a USSR supermarket type situation isn't actually that ridiculous. And those are, those are the type of things that will affect everyday people. But again, I think... I'm not sure whether they will make the correlation between we're poorer, we have less choice, you know, our lives are shit versus to to the Brexiteers who promised them that things would be better. You know, I, I, I my fear is that they would blame the EU for imposing this upon them rather than the people who 
fed them the kind of fantasy that ended up um, materializing in the where where we might be. That's your broccoli. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, genuinely, I mean, I honestly, I think, I think it correlates really neatly with what's often discussed. Like this is it, people go, I don't like broccoli. Yeah, exactly. I don't like broccoli. So what? Hmm. Or the argument that really you even argument. hear, the argument that you even hear, you know, really uh, pro leave people saying, I knew we were taking an economic hit, you know, but I voted for it anyway. That's I would such love to eat less broccoli. <laughs> if hard Brexit is all that's entailed in, in making that happen, then I could accept yeah, yeah. Can we, just briefly, like, looking at the Treasury figures, they're fucking weird, by the way. They're really quite dodgy. Like, I mean, I love the, the, the checkers comes alive out of fucking... She hasn't mentioned it in months. Out it comes. As if... And that's put forward as an... They assess this. They forecast this economic proposition. And you're like... Well, you might as well forecast fucking Snow White. If you're going to play, you know, you're basically just playing dress up. So I mean, why is this what you're doing? Because it doesn't exist in the world. It's not an offer in the world. So how on earth did you come to any kind of forecast on it? And then the conclusions they come to on that basis, they worked out that services would suffer 0.1% more restrictions in the single market as Norway than it would under May's imaginary fairy tale do. And you're like, what the fuck? How did you fucking do that? And by the way, when you dig down then into the actual footnotes of the stuff, it turns out that all of these have been modelled assuming that we have trade deals with about, I think it was about 20 countries. It's like the USA, Bahrain. It fucking with the list went on. You're just like, really? Just, just utter, really, really shoddy work. And even then, of course... It comes down and shows that we take a loss and the Brexiters say that it's Project Fear and the blah, blah, blah. But actually, you look at it and those guys went out of their way to make that shit as palatable as humanly possible. And that's what you get. Is that is the, is the Project Fear accusation still... Do, does it still have the traction, I wonder, that it did? Mm. Because it seems to me, and obviously, you know, here I am doing this, but it seems to me like a great many of the things that had that stamp whacked on it of proje- as Project Fear are like... Well, no, that's arrived now, or that's in a truck on the A2 waiting to be delivered. Like, those things are here. And what, I, what I'm what i not hearing, and obviously not, because things like 350 million more, the Brexit bonus and all the rest of it are so demonstrably and obviously not true. What I'm not hearing is this, is any counterpoint at all. You know, so Remainers say, these things will happen, we'll lose this, we'll lose this, we'll lose this. I haven't heard anybody say, aha, but when X, Y, and Z. You know, not even mm-hmm. Liam Fox, and he's pretty good at that. At like, at going, this will all be great. You hear, so, so you get a few tweets from David Davis going, I've been to America. Uh, it was a big, it was a big hall I walked down and they had doors. Did you see that? Amazing string of tweets, just like... I went and they had a building and they let me in. Incredible. I don't know. Maybe they did try, I mean, she tried to get Pretty Patels out there this morning using exactly the literally said Project Fear and the blah, blah, blah. But then you think back. Again, I was sort of, oh, it was remarkable to me this week. I mean, the Sun, the Sun had an editorial saying, oh, shit, we should never have triggered Article 50 without a plan. And you look back on the Sun front page when that was done and it was the White Cliffs of Dover and it's like, oh, we're coming for you. You know, the Krauts have got it coming this time. And off we went. And you sort of think, like, we are going through that, that process that people go through where they just start to rewrite their own memory to forget that they are ever wrong about it because there's this, gr- this sort of swell of change of opinion. And you get it on the Article 50 thing. It's been a long time since I've heard someone, and I obviously have to debate a lot of Brexiters, say that it was a good idea to trigger at that point without a plan. Let alone, the, you know, was it a good idea to hold a fucking pointless general election immediately afterwards? And yet none of them are saying, I got that wrong. 
There's very little contrition or sort of, you know, uh, and I mean about mm, pundits, mm. I don't mean sort of, you know, people in the public. It's this process, again, we've talked about it before, and it's the same sort of thing that I think you see with Iraq, where the amount of people that now say Iraq was a bad idea is significantly higher than the amount that were saying it was a bad idea in 2003. But you don't hear people say, this was the point where I realized I was wrong. They just kind of start rewriting the VHS tape to go, well, there was always another movie recorded on there. Mm. That's quite a dated cultural reference I just made. Yeah, <laughs> people listeners don't even know what a fucking VHS tape is. You've heard him throughout the show. It's comedian and actor Marcus Brigstock. Radio 4 and Have I Got News For You regular, whose alter ego, Giles Wembley-Hogg, is about to return. How do you think Charles has felt about Brexit so far. Would, would he have voted to, to leave? No. Um, really? I'm, uh, well, I'm cautious. No, I'm cautious here about giving away too much of our planned plot for what I hope will be a very funny show. No, the premise we have at the moment is that Giles, who was at Charterhouse with Jeremy Hunt, purely, but, but, well, purely, that's not part of the thing, but from where it's set, Giles was at Charterhouse and he must have been there with Jeremy Hunt. No, Giles, basically, uh, the story is... Um, Mum voted to remain, dad voted to leave, and ever since then, dad's been in the shed having bought in the bag kedgery and no, nobody's spoken. And I went into the polling booth and, and for the first time in my life, despite being privately educated, when I was asked a question I didn't know the answer to, I decided the best thing was to not answer. Um, and I've never done that before. I, in fact, I spoiled my ballot paper. Well, I spoiled the little pencil. I spoiled the whole booth in the end because I, I panicked and it tipped over. But, um, but yeah, I decided I simply didn't know enough to answer the question. And I thought, Giles, stop. So Giles didn't vote. He didn't vote, but he went to the polling booth and he had a look and he went, I don't know the answer to this. And so Giles's position actually is mum and dad now hate each other. And that's what he's most concerned with, that mm. and the um, the continued prosperity of the Budley Salterton Fudgery, which is his favourite shop in the world. <laughs> well, so, I was, I was and I hope, genuinely, I hope in writing it that I can create something that when people listen to it, whether they voted to leave or remain or whether they've switched any of their positions, they can find it funny and they feel that the way in which we're divided, and I don't think there's a Band-Aid that will heal that, mm -hmm. uh, not a quick one anyway, the way in which they're divided, it can be okay, like we can we can carry on, we can muddle through and do more than just what actually a, a lot of people are going to do this Christmas, and I think it'll be worse than last Christmas, I mean when families all come together, um, is draw a veil over it because you absolutely have to. It's too painful otherwise. Yeah, you do. But, yeah, but that doesn't help us sell our Brexit merch. <laughs> ah, well, you know, the veil needn't be fully drawn. Did you see the MASH report, by the way, suggesting that the um, the, the, the border between uh, Ireland and Northern Ireland will be a beaded curtain <laughs> so, that you, so that goods can still be passed through it without putting your whole body through it? It was such a brilliant piece. Um, MASH report has been great on this, yeah. Your, yeah. your, your thing earlier was, I, I don't want to alienate one set that means that I'm not working there must be a way of talking about it. I don't mind pissing them off I don't want them to feel 
that they're excluded. Right, and right. there's a difference as a comedian between those two things. Do you think? Because I was looking at the match report this week. I had the it's sort of kicking back at Andrew Neil. Andrew Neil saying it's lefty rubbish. And yeah. they were doing, but they're kind of solidifying themselves into the we're the left wing comedy bit. Do you think that they're getting away with it? Because they're at a quite daring level for British broadcasting in terms of positioning as well. Yeah, and they you know they should be left of centre, firmly left of centre. I mean, they have Jeff Norcott on. Jeff Norcott is a brilliant mm. comedian. He's a conservative and a Leave voter who, I, it's sad because I have a lot of respect for Jeff Norcott, but he's a Leave voter and pro-Leave, but with now nothing to say mm. about it. And I, I, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn. Jeff, if you hear this, it's a challenge. Tell me what you think. Tell me what you voted for and what you now want. Mm. Um, but they, they must be left of centre, not just because we have a Conservative government, but because everything is not left Everything is not left. You can't. You have to be in opposition to that. You have to be. You could. They could do pieces critical about the NHS, and they should certainly. But I seriously doubt that they'll find themselves being critical of the, you know, the provision of healthcare for as many people as possible, as affordably as possible. They'll be critical of the other elements of it. What the fuck do people like Andrew Neil? Who, what does he own? I can't remember. But he's, I mean, he's absolutely up the to his... spectator, isn't it? Yeah, okay. So the spectator, yeah. And mates with the Barclay brothers and the rest of it. What the fuck does he want satirists to do, exactly? <laughs> to sit with him and Michael Portillo in their little nighttime death bunker, having twee reports from that odious little turd Quinton Letts that make them giggle because Quinton Letts did a dance in a hat. You know, it's rank cowardice of the highest order. They sit there at night doing this, and I've been foolish enough to go on that fucking programme. <laughs> you know, what do they want the programmes like the Mash Report to do? I mean, you know, Nish, Nish wears his politics out on his sleeve. You know, it's pretty obvious what he thinks about things. And they may want for programmes like that to have balance. I would argue, and of course I would, because I am one. We're not anonymous, Right. We we don't we're not hiding behind some troll mask on the Internet. When we say something about Brexit, about the NHS, about Andrew Neil or whatever, we're here for the taking, mostly without the resources to hide in any meaningful sense. So I, I think those who disagree with the people on the MASH report should take their hats off to them and go, good for you. There's no hiding there, is there? We know who you are and what you think. Mm. It's courageous what they, we, I do. I really think so. Um, it's a fucking great show. Because there's an idea that Brexit isn't funny. And actually, I think there's been some good Brexit comedy. There was a really good sitcom, a Northern Irish sitcom about Brexit. Did you see that? Oh, no, I didn't. I'd it's like really to see that. It's really funny. I forgot what it's yeah. called, but it's very, very funny. And um, there was a, I, I, I liked the British bulldog, David Davis thing. You know, British bulldog. He's <laughs> fresh back from Brussels. And uh, I, I think there's some good Brexit yeah, comedy look, developing. Of course, there's lots of, lots of laughs to be had, and, and that's crucial. Pointing and laughing is good. It's really important. It's a it's a useful function. Point and laugh at uh, at the serious and at those trying to get away with mm. bad stuff. I think it's uncommon, though, rather like Trump, in that it is so divisive. It is very hard for people who who disagree to find it funny. Even now, I mean, the new show I'm doing, I'm doing not as myself. I'm doing it as Lucifer, partly because of this. So Lucifer's risen from hell to say. Um, we've got a problem. Hell is full. 
because none of you are capable of forgiving each other for anything, <laughs> which means everything's a sin, and you know too much about each other because the internet means you literally photograph your poached eggs, let alone tell us what you think, which is also on there. So hell is full, and you have to start finding a way of making peace with yourselves about breaking outside your own value system and each other for the things that you simply disagree with that are not sins, they're not evil. So that's a fun way of looking at it, and I'm able to talk about Brexit, and I also have a blue passport that bursts into flames, which is <laughs> so pleasing, because I do a sort of golem-like, tempted, you want it, don't you? Yes. And then I open it, and it literally bursts into flames. Um, so that's a fun way of talking about it, but I think it's very difficult. I mean, if you, I don't know if you saw Stuart Lee's bit, we went, yeah... You know, it wasn't it wasn't only racists, was it, who voted for Brexit? It wasn't only racists, was it? Yeah, it was cunts as well, wasn't it? And it, it, was, a, it was a great piece. It was really, really good. And then he said, and then he said, and those with a legitimate concern about an expansion in Europe, no, 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 no. And it, you know, it was really, really good. Stuart doesn't have. Um, he doesn't he's I know because uh, we talked about it he doesn't get bothered by it in the way that I do I, pro I probably have more of a commercial money head than him and I go I don't really want 52% of my audience to think I'm a terrible asshole. <laughs> I don't you know I'd like people who disagree I would like honestly people who disagree with me to come to my shows because they're not going to disagree about everything and the point about comedy is it's a way of discussing these mm. things and you know yeah. Yeah. We need help. <laughs> do you think it's funny? Do you think it's harder for sort of like sort of generally liberal lefty sort of people to like to imagine what it's what it's like to to actually go to a show and find out that it that it doesn't complement anything? I remember that there's a comics writer called Frank Miller who does who's basically a reactionary lunatic. Oh. And after a while, I remember someone putting a message on a thing going, well, as a matter of fact, I'm a comics guy and I'm a conservative and you guys just don't know the fact that like, most of the stuff I buy, I open up and it goes, you're wrong. Because he's the only right. sort of conservative guy that does it. Maybe it's hard for us to empathise on what it's like on a Friday night to go out and someone's sure, like, yeah. you're wrong, mate. PJ O'Rourke's life right hmm. now is a difficult one, right? PJ O'Rourke, brilliant, 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 contrarian, comedian and conservative. And he's looking at what the GOP are doing in the States and hanging his head every single day. <laughs> but would struggle ever to vote democrat you know i think it is i think that is difficult I, interestingly and this is very much off the topic of brexit but there are a large number of comedians that i know who are by no one's definition left wing now hmm. because there's a meaningful left wing right i mean there's a there's a left wing that mean it there's a left wing that claim they've done the sums and they'll be fine we'll share it all out and don't worry there'll be plenty and i'm not one of them Hmm. Uh, I look at it and I go, I don't think so, actually. The last thing I can afford is for my house to become affordable. <laughs> you know? Please build more affordable housing, but for fuck's sake, not near me. Because everyone I know who has a mortgage borrowed the most they could. No one went in for their mortgage meeting and went, darling, should we have one room less and a bit, a bit less garden? Everyone hmm. went all in. So there's a meaningful left now. And also, that you know, socially there are issues where... Lots of my lefty comedians who just embraced every everything that came along and went, great, how can we include, are still, broadly speaking, saying the same things, but there are sticking points. Transgender rights, hmm. the transgender discussion, the vast majority of my friends are keeping shtum. Hmm. For good reason. Hmm. There are social issues and political issues right now where 
it might suit Andrew Neil to describe us all as lefty, but uh, there are plenty of people way to the left of the entire cast of the MASH report who are going, <laughs> yeah. how is that right-wing propaganda allowed on the television? And that's good. That's, that's, how, that's how that picture should look, you know? Drives me mad, but, but that's what's supposed to happen. Is there anyone doing good stuff on transgender sort of stuff? Is there anyone that's, that's grappling no. with that one? Not, no, com- comedically, no, because it's way, way, way too toxic, toxic right mm. now. I hope it settles because I think that somewhere in the middle of that mix, there are some people whose lives make a good deal more sense to them not lived in the gender that their um, biological sex indicated when they were born. And I think that for them, uh, right now, it must be very painful and very difficult. The trans activists and those that are now described as TERFs or transphobes who are polarising incredibly fast are just like the extreme ends of, of the Brexit discussion, although it's much more personal with, with, with trans issues, are making life a misery for those in between and, you know, for families who are trying to make sense of stuff like that, people with mm. autistic relatives or who have some degree of autism themselves for whom trans identity uh, or gender identity issues come up and all of these sorts of things. Very, very painful. And it's why as a comedian, actually, I've always taken the responsibility of that kind of stuff. Like, I would like people to come to my shows who, who disagree with me. I take it very seriously. You know, I don't mind saying I, don't, I love the Stuart Lee thing. I thought it was hilarious, and I, I never mind doing that myself. But I don't want a whole show to feel like that. It's not right. That's right, and I think that even though we often talk about this debate in terms of left or right politics, I think the trend that we're all seeing and describing is, you know, one of polarization yeah. to both poles, which isn't necessarily left or right, but the big threat almost seems to be this ideological bent, you know, which is not at all grounded in reality. And it has polarized around issues like Brexit or Trump, but also identity issues. And this is something that we not only see here in the UK, but all around the Western world. I mean, Mm. I work on disinformation and foreign kind of influence in democracies. And that polarization, that chink in our armor, the thing that makes our democracies, you know, strong and able to survive, that everybody has a chance to to say what they want. But at the same time, we're losing our own critical abilities to discern what is true. You know, there has to be some kind of rationality behind this Mm. is opening us up very, very dangerously to all kinds of um, new threats. And I think the biggest one is that there seems to be no grasp on what is real anymore. And we see that on all sides of the debate. Have you read um, Future Politics by yeah. Jamie Suskind? Yeah. I mean, have you, a great, great book. A plug for anybody listening. Future Politics by Jamie Suskind is extraordinary. And I really hope a lot of politicians and journalists make the time to read it. It's very readable, very yeah. understandable, whilst discussing incredibly complicated issues and the way in which uh, data storage, data collection, and the way in which the things we have communicate with each other without us even being part of the loop and algorithms that build algorithms without us being included in them is changing the political landscape. And I think polarisation is an inevitable consequence of us constantly being fed information that ranges from the photographs of your poached egg that you had for breakfast all the way through to my favourite movie is this and look at this asshole who's supposed to speak for us but is lying. 
Exactly. You know, uh, it's it's a tidal wave of information, and it's too hard for most of us. I'm exhausted, and it's my job. <laughs> Yeah. My job to know that. Yeah, you know. I mean, what, what you're say, seeing actually is Russian di- disinformation using issues like trans rights mm. to yeah. dr- uh, to drive a wedge between people because they seize on it in the same way that the Daily Mail, you know, used to or mm. you know, still does seize on, you know, those mad lefties and so on. It's it's um, a way of saying no. This is this is the new kind of progressive people, and we don't like those. These are our traditional values, and those yeah. are in opposition. Absolutely. And like, I mean, Russian disinformation activities is nothing new. The Soviet Union, you know, very uh, all the kind of the rule book, the Russian rule book has been going on for ages and they kind of intervene on both sides of the debate. So if you look at 2016, um, it wasn't just pro Trump messages that they were pushing. They were also pushing pro Bernie Sanders messages. You know, Mm -hmm. they create a lot of feminist propaganda, which they then share on the internet to evoke these kind of visceral emotional reactions mm. out, out of out of us. So it's certainly something that people need to be aware of, especially because the frontiers of disinformation are evolving. And I'm working on something right now, which is the evolution of deep fakes. I know we've talked about it a bit, mm. but this is essentially AI, which is going to hit in about 12 months, where literally you can create audio and video content of anyone saying or doing anything. Um, I mean, imagine there was a deep fake video right now of Theresa May in a back room with Juncker saying, you know, she never believed in Brexit anyway. And, um, you know, this is Brexit in name only. It would mm. be enough to sink her government. So the consequences are huge. Mm. Yeah. Deep fakes are terrifying, really terrifying, aren't they? I'm glad that we've had another happy episode <laughs> of this podcast. I feel really good. Well, fortunately, we're coming to the end of the show. <laughs> Um, which means it's time for the Brexit time capsule. We're, what's going into our sealed chamber of things we'll need if we leave the EU and things we'll miss if we're gone. Marcus, you're the guest this week. Mm. What's, what's your nomination for the time I capsule? I am going to put a really sad-looking, scrawny, uh, battery chicken into the time capsule. <laughs> A really exhausted chicken that's covered in the feces and feathers of its dead friends and relatives. Because come Brexit, when chlorinated chicken is uh, something we're celebrating because it's so affordable, we're going to miss considering the life of a Nando's chicken. So as bleak as it may be to consider the life of, of battery chickens, like the standard we've set for them is pretty damn low. You know, it's pretty low right now. And post-Brexit, I think we're going to look and go, God, do you remember when chickens were really happy and healthy? (laughs) So I'm putting one of those in. You literally took us down another level. Yeah! (laughs) We always finish with a clip in a European language, and this is a very special and very ancient one, a bit of Sanskrit, the oldest extant Indo-European language from listener James Mallison, senior lecturer in Sanskrit and classical Indian studies at SOAS, because our listeners are in a class of their own. That means our Indo-European family is forever closely tied by language. The bond should not be weakened, but made stronger in every way. Thank you, James. 
Remember, we need your European clips, so record a short message on your phone, keep it cleanish, and email it with a translation to info at romaniacs.com. We'll use the best ones. And that's the end of the show. Thanks to Marcus Brigstock for coming in. What are you up to next, apart from Giles uh, Wembley Hall and Brexit? finishing up my Devil May Care tour, uh, doing a run of shows called There Will Be Cake, which will have <laughs> no political content whatsoever <laughs> really? at the beautiful Omnibus Theatre from the... 18th of December no cake-ism. 22nd. No cake-ism. Mm, no cake-ism. No cake-ism. No, 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 no. In fact, it's called There Will Be Christmas Cake. It's an improv show with Rachel Paris, Paul Foxcroft and Pippa Evans and myself. Good fun. Fantastic. Listeners, don't forget the Romaniacs Christmas Market and Romaniacs Live on Monday 10th of December. Get your tickets at leicestersquaretheatre.com. Thanks to Ian and Nina. We'll see you next time. Here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional thanks to our latest Patreon backers. Hello and thanks from me to Christopher Hind, Mike Chowney, Mark Taggart, James O'Malley, David Houghton and Bob Bragger. Thanks from me to Andrew Stewart, David Eastman, Sam Lawson, Dan Rebalotto, Nick Bailey and Peter Hodder-Williams. Finally, thanks from me to Nicholas Evans, Melanie Smollett, Luke van der Borne, Tiago Gandra, Martin Evans and John Zorzi. Many thanks. We'll see you next week. Romaniacs was presented by Roz Taylor with Nina Schick and Ian Dunt. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The producer is Andrew Harrison. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Thank you.